So, uh, Tracy, thank you for doing this podcast. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure to be able to sit down and talk with you. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Absolutely. So, my name is Tracy Brame, and I have a, a um, I'll give you my long title, and then I'll kind of break it down. I'm the uh, Associate Dean of Experiential Learning and Practice Preparation at Cooley Law School. Uh, so that means, you know, a lot of administrative work. Uh, at the management level of the school, but my favorite role at the school is that I'm the director of the Puyas project, and we help um, Michigan inmates investigate claims of innocence. Um, I'm sorry, you you help Michigan uh, inmates what? Inmates mm -hmm. uh, explore claims of innocence. Okay. Mm -hmm. What is? I feel like there's a lot there. What is? What is that like for one? And how overwhelming is that? Huh. Uh, it's very overwhelming. So um, there are two innocence projects here in Michigan. There's ours and then there's one at the University of Michigan. And we correspond with Michigan inmates who uh, want help, right, uh, uh, with what they consider to be wrongful incarceration. Our clinic specializes in forensic and DNA work. So we take on cases involving uh, DNA claims, right, and forensic claims. And so I guess our prototypical case might be a case in which we would test a piece of evidence from a case, right, uh, to, to try to find a path to exoneration for our client, right, to show that he wasn't on the scene or that he wasn't, right, part of the crime or something like that. Um, right. that's, our, that's our specialty. Um, it is incredibly rewarding work, right, but it is overwhelming. Uh, I think people under uh, underestimate the number of folks that are wrongly incarcerated here in the state and around the country. You know, there, there are a lot of people in prison who, who shouldn't be there. And sifting through the number of people that write to us, right, because, you know, obviously we get more inquiries, right, than we can handle, and, and, uh, and, and not only the innocent folks write to us, right, so sifting through, you know, those cases and finding cases that um, are good cases, quote, unquote, both in the sense that there seems to be uh, an innocent person, right, that we need to help and, that there's something that we can do to help them, right? It's a big task. Right. Now, <clears throat> how many people would you say are wrongfully convicted? Um, do, you, do you just work on Michigan cases or do you work on- We just work on Michigan cases. Okay, so how many people are wrongfully convicted in Michigan? Uh, you... you know, that's, yeah. And that's incredibly difficult, uh, an incredibly difficult question to answer. Um, because like I said, there's so many more cases that any of us can get to. I can tell you, but for example, we work with the Wayne County uh, Conviction Integrity Unit, which is an arm of the prosecutor's office that works on innocence cases as well, that examines old cases. And it's been a wonderful program, right? Because instead of fighting the prosecutor, we're now working alongside the prosecutor, kind of get to the truth of these cases. And in the couple of years that they've been up and running, Valerie Newman and her office, and that's just in Wayne County, Michigan, uh, have uh, their exonerations are in the low 30s, right? 33, 34 people just in a couple of years. Um, our office over the last, you know, our office has been around for about 20 years and we've had uh, direct involvement in about 10 exonerations and University of Michigan, I think, just celebrated its 20-something, right? And some of those overlap, right? Some of those overlap, but, you know, just in, you know, just off the top of my head, I can, I can, you know, refer you to dozens of people, you know, here just in this state that, that, that have been exonerated. Uh, and like I said, you know, the number of, of, of folks who are, are uh, still sitting in prison, it's just hard to, you know, 
hard, hard to know how many people are actually wrongly convicted. Now, what <clears throat> what exactly leads to somebody being wrongfully convicted? Is it like negligence in the, the prosecuting process? What What is it? So there are a number of factors that, that lead to wrongful convictions, and people often think of wrongful convictions as kind of this nefarious conduct on behalf of the government, like planting evidence or sloppy investigations, et cetera. And that does happen, right? Certainly happens sometimes, and, and certainly before there was um, such thorough DNA testing and you know uh, uh, post-conviction investigation, it happened more than it does now. But there are also right uh, other circumstances that might not necessarily be nefarious, right? That might not uh, not might, might not be um, purposeful. So one of the dynamics we see is that there's a lot of pressure on police departments to solve crime, right? Uh, and once they zero in on the suspect, sometimes you know, they start to engage in what we like, what we call a suspect-based investigation as opposed to a broader investigation that they might zero in on John Doe and their investigation turns into, let's show that John Doe did this, right? And so, you know, they're, they're looking for pieces of the puzzle to put together to show that they did it when, you know, in actuality, right, it, it, it wasn't them. Um, and, you know, but, but they have narrowed their investigation, right, in that way. Uh, there are sometimes, you know, false forensics that, that lead to uh, wrongful convictions. We had a case where our, our client was convicted in part based on bite mark evidence, right? So bite mark on the victim matched his dental plate, right? And bite mark evidence has been shown to be unreliable, right, and, and specious. And, and so, you know, those kind of things have, have led to wrongful convictions. Uh, people assume that, particularly in, in cases where there are confessions, for example, that, you know, there's no way anybody would confess, right? They were actually innocent innocent. But we found that there are coerced confessions, right? That people under dire circumstances will say just about anything to be able to go home, right? On a, on a promise of, of um, mercy, right? They'll, they'll say just about anything. And again, sometimes they're browbeaten by horrible cops. Sometimes the police officers think they have the right person. They're just trying to get a confession. Does ethics have anything to do with that, the way they they do the interviews post like a murder or something. Um, the the way that they talk to the the person who possibly committed the crime is it is it the way they could they conduct their ethics around it? Sometimes, right? Like I said, sometimes it's just like I said, the police officer thinks that they have the right person and they're, and they're you know trying to get the story. They're trying to get a dangerous person off the street. But if you think about Right, what any of us would do to try to get somebody to tell us something, right? You right. know, the, the, the police officers use and detectives use tricks, right? They use, you know what I mean? They, they uh, everything from, um, you know, sleep deprivation to who, you know, kind of hours long interrogations and, and things like that. And one of the things that we see is that in most states, including Michigan, police officers are allowed to tell a suspect something that is not necessarily true in order to get them to confess, right? Your buddy's in the other room. He's already confessed to this, right? He's already told us you were involved, so you may as well confess, right? Um, and that is not necessarily an illegal thing to do, right? We might think it's a, it's a tricky or unethical thing to do, but it's not necessarily an illegal thing to do. Um, so the things that you would, you would guess, right, isolation from attorneys and from family members, you know, um, uh, coercive tactics, just, you know, in, in general, uh, you know, yeah. 
false information about um, about what, what they know about the crime, all of those things kind of go into. Wow. I didn't I didn't realize that that was completely legal in Michigan. That's wild. Mm -hmm. That is really wild. How so I, my question, my, I guess my next question is um, how often are is, is there any recent cases where somebody was wrongfully convicted or is this something that was kind of something of the past because of the lack of communication, the lack of like uh, media and the lack like media coverage um, and the lack of technology? So, um, so that's a great question. And, and certain types of wrongful convictions, right, have, have, have diminished somewhat. So, for example, one common type of wrongful conviction in the past uh, were convictions in which uh, black men in particular, right, were convicted of raping white women. And part of the dynamic there is that we now know that eyewitness, right, identification is not always accurate, right? Not as accurate as we think it is. And in particular, cross-racial identification can be problematic, right? So we know a lot more about that than we knew 20, 30 years ago. And we have much better, again, DNA testing and technology than we did back then. So what we're starting to see now is that recognizing those identification issues up front and having more DNA testing at the front end of the case, right? Instead of doing DNA testing 15 years later and saying, oh my God, it wasn't him have reduced the number of those kinds of cases, right? Wrongful convictions and, and those kind of sexual assault cases. But they still happen quite frequently, right? And disproportionately to people of color in just about every other, right? Um, every other, other realm. Um, it's just tough. Like I said, if, if we think about the rate of error in just about anything, like, you know, nothing that we do is foolproof. And when you're talking about something that's complex as a criminal investigation, um, right, with, with all of the kind of incentive um, perverse assistance that, that they are in there to, to solve the crime, it's inevitable that people are going to, to get caught up, right? Um, and, and so we have, you know, cases that have been around for 30 years of people that were convicted, like you said, back when, you know, there was, we, we knew less than we know now, but we also have more recent convictions where they just, they got the wrong person. And again, one of the, the good developments in Michigan is that we now have these conviction integrity units. I mentioned the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, but we also work with the State Attorney General, Dana Nessel. Her office has a, a conviction integrity unit as well. And there's now more of a recognition from the government that sometimes we get it wrong, right? Part of the problem in the past is that, you know, we were kind of banging our heads against the wall when we said, hey, we think this person Right, might not have done what they were convicted of, and there was a reluctance on the part of the government, right, uh, for you know, for for whatever their reasons might be, to acknowledge that, right, to admit making a mistake, to admit that they might have the wrong person. But now, you know, there's at least uh, a, a movement where you know prosecutors' offices are opening these divisions that actually acknowledge that mistakes do happen and are willing to investigate. Now, when somebody is wrongfully convicted and they are finally released and um, they're finally out of prison, their life, you know, is in front of them now outside of prison. Do they have any sort of compensation? Is there any? Is there anything that the, I guess, the government or um, maybe you guys would would offer them any services? So again, so so great question, and we've come a long way in that regard as well. So there there is actually a wrongful incarceration compensation act here in Michigan that provides an avenue for wrongfully incarcerated individuals to seek compensation once they're released. 
Um, and it's a relatively narrow path. There's, you know, things that they have to prove. They have to show actual innocence. They have to show, you know, certain things in order to apply for that compensation. But they can get up to $50,000 per year of wrongful incarceration through that process. Um, uh, former, formerly incarcerated folks also file, at times, they'll file 1983 or civil rights actions against the entities that prosecuted them. Um, that investigated the case and prosecuted them. So there's, you know, obviously that legal avenue, if they can show that there was wrongdoing on behalf of the investigating agency, right? Um, sometimes they, they seek compensation that way as well. Uh, so those are the, the two really kind of avenues for recompense um, for, for compensation, right? To, to actually, you know, try at least to, to, to make someone whole uh, from a financial standpoint. Um, there are more and more services also to help people once they get out. The Michigan Department of Corrections has been doing a better and better job. So when someone is paroled after serving a legitimate sentence, right, um, in the last 20, 25 years, there's been an advent of a lot of reentry services, recognizing that most, right, Michigan inmates, most inmates in general are not going to be in prison forever. So unless you got a life without parole sentence, right, you're going home one day. And there's a recognition that for that inmate uh, well-being as well as for the community, we need to try to prepare them to come home. And up until recently, you didn't see that same level of service for wrongfully incarcerated right, individuals because it's just a different process right, than, than parolees. Now, again, now that there are more people coming home right, with more folks working on these, uh, these innocent cases, the, the Michigan Department of Corrections is doing more as they prepare people to, to go home and make sure that they have things that we take for granted, right? Like uh, an identification, right? A card that they can use um, to, to open a bank account, right? To, to rent a house, you know, things like that. Employment services, mental health services, educational opportunities, et cetera. Um, our office, you know, uh, has relationships with people in, in the community that we try to connect our clients to as needed. Some folks come home and they have a very uh, great support network, but their family has been, you know, uh, with them all along and has been waiting their return. Uh, we had an exoneree last year who uh, his family came to the post-exoneration gathering in a party bus. There were that many people, right? Uh, but we have another uh, client who was exonerated last year who had lost everyone. He had been in for 33 years and lost everyone. Um, and so we, you know, helped him get an apartment, all of those things. So it really is, it depends on what any given individual needs. Um, and, you know, like I said, Valerie Newman at the Conviction Integrity Unit in Wayne County uh, does a lot to support wraparound services for folks once they are released as well. That, that's, that's really cool. And I think that's uh, extremely um, important for, for people who are just getting out of prison. I, I work at General Motors and I have a guy that works in my team that was just paroled um he had spent most of his life in prison he was like i think he's like 68 or 70 or wow. something and so like it was it's kind of cool to see how somebody who was in prison that long was able to get out of prison and then actually land a, a what would be considered a, a good paying job exactly and we i mean if you think about how much uh development, right, there is in your life, in your adulthood, right? So many of my clients spend their young adulthood. They maybe have been incarcerated when they were 19, 20 years old, and they're coming out at 40, 50, 60 years old. And all of those milestones, right, again, that we take for granted in the natural course of, you know, adult development, they, they haven't had an opportunity to do. And so it's great if they have that support out there, that, that kind of safety net of a job and of support. And, you know, little things, using the, the cell phone technology to love it around, right, when, when they went in, you know, just, Right. A little bit that we don't think about it. 
I think that the whole idea of people, you know, like, because it used to be kind of the idea of if people went to, if somebody went to prison, then they should be shunned from society for the rest of time. But in reality, they're going to be a part of society at one point. So we need to try to uh, find a way to integrate them back in. And so that when they can be a part of society, they can be, uh, uh, they can be a productive member of society again, or end of the exactly. community. And that's how we would all want to be treated, right? Because we all, every one of us, right, makes mistakes. Every one of us falls short. Um, and we all hope that we can be forgiven and that we can move on. And the folks that we're talking about, certainly the innocent ones, but even folks that are, you know, incarcerated that um, were not innocent, they made mistakes and, in, and their mistakes happen to be of the criminal nature and landed them in prison, et cetera, but they still should be, right, treated better than the worst thing they've ever done, right? Like all of us should have an opportunity to show that we're better than the worst thing that we've ever done. Um, right. you know, none of us are perfect. There's a, a couple people I've had on the podcast that um, like one of them, I, you might've heard of uh, Good Time Makes Good Sense in Michigan. Oh, um, oh yes, yes, absolutely, yep. yep. They've good been on Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Good. Good credit. Credited time. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. They've been on the podcast, and then I've also had. Um, oh, what's the other one? Can't remember. Uh, Nation something. Or Nation outside. Oh uh, yeah, Nation outside. But yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't remember their name right now. Um, but I get text messages from them. I think it's called Nation outside. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I think I think they do work specifically for people that are in prison and trying to reintegrate into society. Correct? Yes, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and we also have in Michigan, we have a a, a, a great uh, system in place where people can apply to expunge their criminal convictions once they have served their time and spent a certain amount of time, you know, home uh, getting their life together, right? So they can apply set the criminal history aside so that they're not every time they look for a job right they don't have background check coming up saying up oh, fell and fell and fell right so we also have a, a great expungement uh, statute here in michigan that has evolved over the last 10 years to be relatively expansive just recognizing that again from a moral perspective a second chance makes sense but also from this a very practical and even business perspective uh, second chance makes sense now, is there any state in the United States that's doing it right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a loaded question. I, you know what? I I don't know how to answer that. that that's, a, that's an expansive question that I'd have to think more about. Um, is, is there any state that is, let's, I guess let's break it down. Is there any state that as far as reintegrating people back into society, as far as um, offering mental health services, which state's doing it the best? Right. Um, mm. You know what, I I haven't done a statewide kind of, that's actually a great project and I'm gonna know my students, I'm gonna say, I have a great project for you that I was given. Um, (laughs) So so I don't know the answer to to, to that question. I can say again that Michigan is making inroads. And some of the states, to the extent that they are doing things well, um, you know, they are encouraging wraparound services for people coming home. They are reinstating, right, um, the, the, the right to vote, et cetera, once, you know, once people come home. They are, uh, you know, uh, providing avenues for compensation, and, you know, and, and things of that nature. So I, I don't, I'm not as up on 
what all the other states are doing and more, you know, kind of uh, familiar with what Michigan is doing. And, and I can say, right, uh, with guarded optimism that Michigan is, is moving in the right direction, even as we you know, have a long way to go. Well, I guess that gives people hope, right? Mm -hmm. um, people, it gives people hope and people work to do because we want to kind of, you know, always the momentum that we have now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, now, how many how many cases has Cooley Law School uh, been uh, involved in in in, re in releases? So we have so directly uh, ten or so, and indirectly. So we have clients that we take on right formally, and then we have cases where we consult on the DNA portion of the case. So sometimes there might be a private attorney handling the case, um, or you know, yeah. Uh, the case might come to us in a different way and we might just kind of just because we have expertise and we have a couple of grants that we work under that gives us funding for DNA testing. So some people work with us to handle that portion of the case. So 10 people directly. And again, our work is a little bit more narrow because it is science focused. Uh, and it, so, so the cases that involve that kind of work, you know, University of Michigan, for example, they have a higher rate of exoneration in part because they do a broader investigation of cases. They go knock on doors, they find old alibi witnesses, right? They, you know, kind of reinvestigate the case in a way that we don't necessarily do. We say, hey, is there any evidence that might be worth testing? And what does that testing mean? But I have to say, and I keep putting these plugs in for the Conviction Integrity Unit, um, of those 10 people, I started here at the Cooley Innocence Project oh, beginning of 2020-ish. Um, and just since I've been here and we've been working with Wayne County and the Attorney General's office, um, three of those 10 exonerees have come in the last two years, right? And we've been around for 20 years. Wow. Um, so we've had, yeah, <laughs> and that, and I have to say four, really four of them, one on the Wayne County side, three on the Attorney General's side, uh, just in the last two years. So that, that's, that's how forward thinking, at least Michigan has, has been, um, and so, like I said, there's a conviction integrity unit at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, at the Attorney General's Office, now at Oakland County, Macomb County, Washtenaw County. So even the, at the county level, you know, people are investing resources uh, and recognizing the, the plight of folks who are sitting in prison, who shouldn't be there, who are waiting for somebody to help them. What is the average cost to reopen up a case and to try to, um, I guess, reinvestigate? Right. Uh, and so that, that depends on who's doing the work, for example. So, so for example, we're fortunate that we're housed in a law school. Um, so, you know, a lot of the cost of the, of the, uh, of the work is, is um, absorbed by, you know, like, you know, my salary as director, and then we have a staff attorney and a managing attorney. We, again, we have secured a couple of grants, you know, recently that support our work with the CIU um, that, that have uh, also given us an opportunity to hire a couple of other staff attorneys. And so you need attorneys, right? Uh, and attorneys, obviously, uh, the best circumstances need to be paid and they need to be paid a living wage. Um, DNA testing is often expensive as well. So the, the testing piece of it is expensive. We work with the Michigan State Police Lab, which is, of course, a government lab that doesn't charge, but if there was initial work done in a case by the MSP, then we're going to send right any any subsequent work out to a private lab, which can cost thousands of dollars, right? So particularly in a case involving, for, but then there's expert right fees because you know while we know a lot about DNA, we're not scientists, and so you know we may identify issues and send uh, evidence in for testing, but then we have to work with experts to interpret the results of those uh, of that testing, which could cost thousands of dollars. So it could cost tens of thousands of dollars to truly and meaningfully 
investigate a case, particularly one that involves experts. And, um, wow. It's expensive. And so, then if, 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 I'm sorry, then I'll, and I'll say we can only handle so many cases. If someone actually has to hire an attorney, that's a whole other expense that's added on. Wow. So does the cost of reopening the case and reinvestigating, does that determine whether or not you guys will cover it or if somebody else can cover it? Well, no, we, so we don't charge for our services as well at all. And, and again, fortunately, we have grants that help us pay right. the DNA testing. Um, or, if, you know, um, and before that, we would ask the, the court, you know, um, for resources for, for testing. Uh, so it doesn't really govern whether we take a case. What it does do, though, is it uh, reduces the number of cases that we can handle at any given time, right? Because we only have so many people in our office and we only have so much money. And, and the cases can take, I mean, we have clients that we had for years, right? Like one of our donorees from last year, we were working on his case for 18 years. And, you know, we had to wait for, um, sometimes you wait for the law to change. Sometimes you wait, wait for technology to advance. Sometimes you wait for, uh, you know, politicians to, 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 to change over, et cetera, because there's so many moving parts in any, you know, in, in many of these cases. So these cases can go on for years. So finding that balance between making sure that we're thorough and we're not giving up on a case, right, that might take 10 years to break, but we're also getting to the backlog of people that are waiting. That's kind of a tricky proposition for us. And so fortunately, we have student help. You know, we have a, a, our, our clinic, as well as University of Michigan, they draw on student volunteers, student interns uh, to, to help investigate the cases, you know, et cetera. So, you know, the, re the resource issue doesn't stop us from taking any individual case, but it definitely reduces the number of cases that can be. Yeah, I understand that. Um, what is that moment like when somebody is finally freed and they they have freedom? Like, what is what is that feeling like for you, somebody who obviously is passionate about helping these people? You know, it, it, it is hard to describe a feeling that is better than that, right? So, um, you know, being able to you know, we, we ceremoniously when, when these cases are, are uh, come to an end and we get a good result. And lately, like I said, we've been uh, partnering with the CIU and we'll go to court and, and we'll uh, agree to dismiss charges, stipulate to dismiss charges against our client. And then we get to go and pick them up from whatever facility they're, they're at, right? We might meet their family there and their friends and all these support folks. And um, my very first case here at the clinic, and I can't take much credit for the investigation of it because I had just gotten here, but it was a case that we were, we were partnering with the, with the AG's office. And one of my first tasks was to go to a facility and tell a client that he was going home. And I tell you, that was the absolute best feeling in the world. And, and I think, you know, that's why there's so much support for this work, so much bipartisan support for this work, because who can't wrap their minds, like, like who can't, you know what I mean, get excited about, um, you know, people have differing feelings of, about people who have committed crimes, right? And, and you know, uh, who are currently incarcerated and when they should come home or how they should be treated when they come home. But someone who was innocent, right? You, you, you're hard pressed to find anyone who doesn't get excited about them coming home. But it's a little bit tempered by, you know, sometimes you step back and you realize, but they lost 25 years of their life. Right. You know, so as happy as we are, we're just so elated that you finally get to come home. Right. That next day you wake up and you say, now they have to put these pieces back together of their life. And, and how do you 
even with, you know, the Wrongful Compensation Act and even, you know, even with resources and dollars that they might receive and community support, how do you make up for that 10, 15, 25 years? You know what I mean? That they didn't have with their family or freedom that they didn't have. And, you know, like I said, that's where the kind of mental health piece comes in and the kind of, you know, recognizing that while we should be really, really happy uh, to go and, 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 and watch somebody walk out the prison gates, we should also be working very, very hard to prevent these convictions from happening in the first place, right? And, and uh, devoting whatever resources that we can uh, to handle as many of these cases as possible so that people, because um, that, because, you know, it, 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 is a, it is a job that is full of emotion, right? You mentioned the word, you, you used the word overwhelming at the top of the hour, and, that, and, and it really is an overwhelming system, so much so that we talk to our staff a lot about, you know, secondary trauma and making sure that we're taking care of ourselves because, you know, we are working with folks that are dealing, you know, again, if you can imagine being someone who knows in your heart that you didn't do what you were convicted, and I'm talking conviction for like first degree murder, like you're in prison for life and you know you did like the psychological toll that that takes on you. Um, and, and, you know, we're working with these clients and sometimes, you know, we have a breakthrough and we're joyous and we're able to bring them home. Sometimes we agree, like in our heart, that we think this person is innocent, and for a variety of reasons, there might be nothing we could do. There's no evidence left to test. There's no, like, it, you know, and, and so, so it is both joyous and heartbreaking, you know, depending on the day. And, um, you know, we just try our best to celebrate the victories, but to stay in touch with our clients, right? To make sure we just, we just all went to a basketball game over, over the break, to a Michigan State uh, basketball game over break with, with some of our clients to make sure that we stay in touch um, and we let them know that, you know, they are more than just some guy we got out of prison, but that, you know, we try to welcome them back to the community and society. What kind of effect do you think uh, people getting released from prison has on a community, in their local communities? Yeah, so um, particularly in smaller communities, finally having that loved one back, right? Like, finally, so so one of our uh, exonerees from, from uh, last year, from last year, he was convicted when his daughter was a baby, like a baby baby. Like, I think they arrested him in the hospital room. Like, you know what I mean? Like, when she was born. And so, um, and so, you know, he missed her growing up, and she's now, she graduated from college, and she's just a wonderful young woman. So, and, and then, and they're, and, and, you know, they were two brothers that were wrongfully convicted and released at the same time. Um, and their mom had been their biggest advocate over the 25 years that they had been in. Uh, and the impact of their being able to rejoin their family has just been, again, immeasurable. Uh, you know, just, just you know, hard to explain. It, no matter how, you know, mom, I'm a mom, right? A mom is a mom, and, and your, your baby could be 16 like mine or 47, right? That, you know, that's your baby. And and and, uh, and watching her get her children, right, back, and, and, and that young woman to get her, her father back uh, it can be incredibly impactful. Um, unfortunately, you know, I talk about how joyous it is for someone to, to, to come home. You know, sometimes our clients still face stigma when they get home. And, 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 and so even now with the cooperation of the prosecutor's office and the conviction integrity unit, there are still people sometimes in the community that like, mm, I'm not so sure that person's innocent. Or, you know what I mean? So they still have to overcome, you know, just kind of little slights um, and, and perceptions and biases uh, that that people who have been incarcerated face. So again, you know, it's one thing if you were there legitimately and you come home and now you have to 
deal with the stigma of being, uh, you know, uh, um, an ex-con or what, you know, to, uh, whatever antiquated terminology people use. But, you know, to have been innocent and spent all that time and still have to feel as though you have to explain yourself over and over again. So I think it can be a, a, a feeling of restoration for a community. I think it can be a healing, you know, for a community. But, uh, but I think that's a great question because, you know, obviously the incarceration of the release affects the inmate and their family most, but it does also. And the community has to come to grips with the fact that, you know, they sent away, right, a member of that community wrongfully, right? Because the prosecutor's office, the, the police agencies are part of that community. Um, so how do you feel? How does that, uh, so one of the interesting, interesting dynamics is the relationship with the police departments in those communities, right? Uh, you know, it can't feel good as an officer, I imagine, right, to, to have the conviction that, you know, maybe you thought was solid from 10 years ago and not everybody's looking at you because this person, you know what I mean? Was it, how does that affect relationships between police and the community? How do they continue to do their work? How do they you know, um, come to grips with the fact that mistakes are made, but, you know, they still have to do their job. And so. That brings me to my next question. I uh, Obviously, you work on the side of the law. Um, I'm assuming you went to, uh, you, you have a law degree, I'm assuming. Um, now, studying cases like this and seeing a lot of maybe some of the um, false accusations and some of the, uh, maybe some evidence was, you know, messed with at some point. Do you have any distrust for law enforcement? I mean, because there's like a huge, I mean, people are like more than ever, I guess, they doubt law enforcement and they don't trust them. So does that kind of alter your thinking towards? So, yeah, so 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 as a lawyer and particularly as an innocent lawyer, right, I, I have to be a trained and natural skeptic, right? So I have to, one of the job, one of our jobs is to look at this case that was seemingly settled 10 years ago, right, and say, let us upend every assumption that was made 10 years ago. And that includes the police work that was done on it, right? Like, let's assume, let's just turn everything upside down, um, and we're really investigating anew. So we have to naturally be cynical about the investigative work that was done. And a lot of cases, you know, it's like, okay, yep, that was, you know, it, it kind of was what it was. and and um, and there's nothing that we could do. But in some cases, we do find, you know, uh, evidence that wasn't turned over to important exculpatory evidence that wasn't turned over to the defense. Um, you know, we find, you know, evidence that was tampered with or sketchy tactics used to extract confessions, et cetera. But I guess I'll say what I what I tell my son. Right? I, I'm the mother of a, of a young African-American um, young man, and I tell him all the time that police officers, investigating, you know, are full of, investigating agencies are full of people, right? Just like we are all people, uh, people trying to do a job. Uh, and, and I think most of those people are truly trying to do their job, right? They went into that profession, uh, you know, trying to make a positive impact on their community to, to, to uh, um, you know, eliminate crime or to, to you know, um, make sure that there's justice served when, when there are crimes committed, et cetera. Uh, but just like in any other organization, right, there, there are people who cut corners, right, or who are in it for the wrong reason, or who over time, right, become jaded and think that everybody they encounter, well, if he didn't do this, he did something, right? You know what I mean? And, 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 and I think that there's some perverse incentives in the system, right, that, that kind of lead to, uh, you know, behavior sometimes that, that makes us cynical. So, for example, one of the uh, factors that we see, we talked about factors of wrongful conviction, uh, there are some convictions that are based 
in part on what we call jailhouse snitch testimony, right? Where you might have somebody that's in jail with someone that, you know, all of a sudden is signing an affidavit and, you know, come into the court to testify that, yeah, Johnny told me he also committed the crime, right? And then what you don't know is that this this inmate was offered a reduced sentence, was given a plum, you know, assignment, was, you know, you know, this, that, and other. So there's some incentives in the system, right, that that just um, that can't help but make one cynical, right? Um, I try my best, you know, in, in, in working with law enforcement and working with the government, uh, you know, to, to to give the same benefit of the doubt that I want given to me. Um, but it is, it, it, it's, it's a, a line that we have to walk because we have to ask the questions, right? And we, you know, we, you know, we have to, to make assumptions until we're proven wrong. Um, but again, you know, now that we have people from the government who are also working alongside of us, and if we can truly get to a place, you know, where we, where we have the cooperation, you know, from investigating agencies that, because, you know, just as I see cops that are doing shady things, you know, we have former police officers that are now investigators that are working with us, right? Trying to say, you know, I saw some of the things that happened in my department. Let me help you, right? Try to track down an alibi witness in this case. So, um, so there's good and bad people in any, good and bad apples in any part, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I had mentioned earlier, I work at General Motors. And so, you know, like, it's not that serious of a job, obviously. I'm not dealing with people's lives, but you see it in something so simple and something so easy where people don't care about their job. They just, they, they'll like half acid or whatever, you know, like they, they just don't care because there's no, there's, there's no consequences. They know they'll get away with it. And so it's like that in every field and in, in every, like industry. That in every field. and that, and that's a great point. And, but the stakes are so much higher, right? When you're, when you're an officer or when you're a prosecutor, and if you are phoning it in, you know what I mean? If you're if you're seeking this, if you're pursuing this conviction because it's an easy conviction and not because it's the right conviction, right? That all of a sudden that impacts somebody's life, right? You know what I mean? And right. so yeah, you're, you're you're absolutely right. You got to you know you got to have people who are dedicated to, to, to doing the job well and who aren't just you know, well. And, and you have to deal with people having bad days, <laughs> like absolutely. whatever they have going on in their own personal life might affect the way they you know they handle a case or, or might affect the way they look at something or look at a situation absolutely our own biases right the way that we look at the world right like and and so i i think that you know we're never going to eliminate mistakes right like like mistakes are going to happen because people are human and people are going to be wrong we have arguments in our office you know about the 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 merit of the cases that come in front of us, right? Like, you know, like none of us knows. My uh, my predecessor, the former director here, immediate former director, she has the saying that she likes to say: only there was an old, I'm, I'm aging myself now, old uh, uh, hair dye commercial back in the day that the tagline was: only your hairdresser knows, right? Only your hairdresser knows your real color. And so my predecessor likes to say: only your hairdresser knows, right? If this person really is innocent, only if this person, like you know, nobody mistake, you know, mistakes will be made. And I think that. Um, the, the valuable work comes in where we recognize that and say, let's take another critical look. We have somebody who is insisting that they just weren't there that day, that it wasn't them, right? They are screaming for help and maybe they're blowing smoke, right? Maybe they actually, did, but maybe, just maybe, can we entertain the possibility that they're innocent? And what does it mean to entertain the possibility? Can we take another look at it, right? Um, and you mentioned before, you know, people kind of, uh, uh, cutting corners or phoning it in where they don't have consequences. And that's another, you know, kind of issue in our field is that police officers for the most part and prosecutors, they don't have to answer 
for their mistakes, right? In the same way that our clients do, right? You know what I mean? Like, you know, they, like our clients are answering for those mistakes by, by you know, being incarcerated for years. But even when it's found that, you know, an officer has made a mistake, they go on to the next case, right? That prosecutor goes on to the, you know what I mean? The next case, and there's a there's a, a legal doctrine called qualified immunity that has roots and reason, right? Like we want our police officers and our prosecutors to be able to do their work without constantly being worried about being sued, right? Like, you know, I, I would try to stop this crime, but if I do it wrong, you know what I mean? I'm gonna get sued. Um, right. But at the same time, it's become this shield Right, that has shielded them from consequences when they really even go overboard and violate constitutional rights, you know what I mean, or you know, do really shoddy police work. So we really have to think about, you know, kind of what are the incentives and consequences when we're talking about the kind of investigations that that, that are happening and, and the kind of work that's being done by um, by these officers. Yeah, absolutely. And also we have to think about um, mental health for them too, mm -hmm. because a lot of the, a lot of the times they become jaded and shaded and they become emotionally unstable um, because of uh, a lot of the things that they have witnessed and during their career, not just outside things, like outside of their, their job, not, you know, just things from home, but the things that they witness on the job. It, it's a, I would imagine it's a really hard job, you know what I mean? And again, I, I try to give the same grace and benefit of the doubt that I would want, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, to, to kind of deal with the kind of, it, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a really hard job. They wake up in the morning and they go off and do their job and hope they're going to come home, you know, at night. And, and, uh, right. and most of them try their best to do the right thing day to day. What? Um, I guess let's kind of go back to you a little bit. What, why did you, why do you take so much interest in this and what makes you want to do this for a living? So, um, besides just being a bleeding heart, just in general, right? Like, uh, just, you know, this, this kind of general answer, I, you know, I got into this profession to help people. Um, I was raised in inner city Detroit. Uh, I'm a first generation lawyer. I grew up in Detroit in the seventies and eighties back when, um, it, and to a certain extent it still is, it was really hard to, to, to raise um, African-American kids in the inner city, right, without dealing with drugs and violence, et cetera. Um, and I certainly, I, I, I uh, fortunately have incredible parents who navigated that so well and, and not only got me through high school, my brother and I, but through college, et cetera, and I was able to go to law school. Um, when I went to law school, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I, I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor, actually. And for no other, because I really didn't know what lawyers, I didn't have a lot of lawyers in my family. So I didn't really know what lawyers did. I said, maybe I'll be a prosecutor and I'll fight crime. My first year of law school, uh, we had a guest speaker uh, with the University of Michigan. And we had a guest speaker by the name of Brian Stevenson. And I don't know if you've heard of him, but if you Google him, you know, he, he has, uh, his speeches are all over the web. You'll, you'll get... He, he uh, wrote the book, Just Mercy, and, and um, he's the subject of the book, Just Mercy, and there was a movie, uh, a motion picture a couple of years ago that was, uh, about his life. But he came to speak to us, and he is a Harvard-educated lawyer who dedicated his time, and talent, and treasure to representing inmates on Alabama's death row who couldn't afford counsel. And he came to speak to our class, and he was so eloquent and so passionate, I said, that, that's what I'm going to do. That, 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 that is now my life, right? That's why I became an acolyte almost immediately, right? Um, and um, it, it fit very, you know, well in line with my sense of justice. Um, you know, like I said, I grew up in, in the city of Detroit at the time of a lot of violence and drugs. And, and when I went to college and law school and started, you know, studying kind of the root causes and effects, right, um, of that dynamic, 
for me, like I, I think that there's definitely a role for, for good prosecutors and, you know, for crime prevention. Like I, I want my parents to be, they still live in the house I grew up in. I want them to be safe, et cetera. But I also recognize that so many of the men, young men that I grew up with, right, that, that their, uh, their lives to too great of an extent were dictated by their zip code, right, by, you know, where they happen to be born or the resources that their families did or didn't have, the people that they fell, you know, fell in with, et cetera. Um, and that even people who, you know, committed crimes sometimes, you know, again, were a function of their surroundings. And I wanted to impact that as a black woman, I wanted to, you know, make a positive difference in that regard. Um, most of our clients, so you know, I've said earlier, um, people of color are disproportionately uh, uh, the, the, uh, wrongfully convicted, right? So even though, you know, 12, 13% of the population, over 40% of those can wrongfully convicted, and again, that's important to me, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and so that was a big uh, driver of it. Um, I'm also a law nerd. I just love the law. I love, I, uh, I was just telling a group of students last night, uh, one of the things I love about the law is its potential to be this great equalizer, right? Um, we as human beings are fallible. We have our own biases, you know, surrounding all kinds of things, class, race, gender, sexual orientation, whatever it might be, we divide ourselves naturally but the law tries to give us an even playing field, right? Tries to say, no matter who you are, we're going to try to apply these principles in a way that makes sure that uh, that justice is, is carried out. So um, that, that's what kind of steered me in this direction. Um, and it's just it's just really interesting work. Um, how how long? I know, I know you said you started your your work with Cooley Law School in 2020, um, but how long have you been doing this work outside of college? So yeah, so I graduated law school a long time ago in 1995, and after a couple of years spent with a uh, with a judge, I became a public defender. So um, I was an appellate public defender. So I have been representing indigent people um, facing criminal uh, sentences, you know, since about 1997. Um, and I took uh, a, a break from that. I've been at, I've been with Cooley Law School since 2006. Um, so I took a break from that. Uh, I have a 14 year old and a 16 year old. And so while they were young, I was kind of boring college administrator kind of thing. I was the campus dean and I was, the, you know, this, that. Um, and so 2020, I kind of came full circle now that my kids are older, you know, because it, you know, I keep going back to your word overwhelming. It really is, if you do it well and lean into it, it is uh, consuming work. Um, and when my kids were little, I said, you know what, I don't, I didn't know if I had the emotional bandwidth, right, to do this and to raise, because I'm just as a personality about my kids as I am about the work. So now that they're more self-sufficient, right, um, once, you know, on the way to college yeah, soon, et cetera, you know, I, I, I kind of return to this, this work. My name is Lauren Harrington. I'm a real estate agent with Century 21, Lemac Realty. Whether you're looking to buy or sell your home, I can help. From the big cities to the small towns and anything in between, I can make your home buying dreams come true. Come join the Century 21 family. Contact me anytime at 989-534-6430 to begin the process. I look forward to hearing from you. Now, you had mentioned, obviously, it's emotionally overwhelming also, but what kind what what kind of things do you do to kind of balance that out because i mean i'm sure some days are exciting when somebody gets released from prison but i'm sure other days could just be draining emotionally especially when like maybe there's a case where there's not enough evidence for you to try anymore and you can't get somebody out of prison um yeah. 
what is so this is what I tell students all the time. So, you know, people think that the work is very sexy and you know, and it is in the sense that again, it's fun to get, you know, fine, fun to bring people home. But the vast majority of our days are tedious, right? Even boring sometimes, right? So I when I tell students who say, I want to come work for the Innocence Project, I said, Okay, do you want to take these three baker's boxes worth of papers and go through them one by one by one? <laughs> Looking for the needle in the haystack, looking for the smoking gun, knowing in that nine other ten cases that you touch, either the person is not innocent or you're not going to be able to do anything about it, et cetera. Um, do you want to deal with the the client, the inmates, you know, that we're because um, you know we have our clients, we have you know that we're working with at any particular uh, time where their cases are active, but we also have a larger list of people that we communicate with because people write us all the time and people who are again um, at the lowest point of their life, you know, who are agitated and frustrated, sometimes mentally unstable, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes they take that out on you. Are you willing to do that? Is that what you want to? So you're right. This job is intense. And it's both, I tell the students, it's both really, really detailed, reading every piece of paper, uh, 1,400 pages, but it's also very broad, right? Trying to strategize about the best way, you know, banging your head against the wall uh, when you seem to have come to a dead end. Uh, you know, and, and so it does, it takes its toll. You see it sometimes even among the staff. So one of the things that, that, that we do as a staff is that we try to do things um, together to, to make sure that we get to know each other, that we're bonding, that we are uh, giving each other grace and mercy and supporting one another, both in the work and personally. Because again, our staff, they have lives outside of here, just like right everybody else. They have little kids, they have, you know, other stresses in their lives. Right. Um, and then I encourage, you know, uh, staff and students, and I try to walk this walk of making sure that you try your best to compartmentalize the work. Uh, and it's not always easy. Like, you know, sometimes I go home and I'm just like, it's hard for me to kind of focus on dinner because I'm, you know, trying to figure out a response to the prosecutor or whatever. But I, but, but I, but I try to make space to recharge, right? Whether that's spending time with my family, music is a big thing for me. So Stevie Wonder usually gets me, you know, called me down from any particular bad day. Um, but but it is, to your point, really, really important. When I worked for Brian, I so I talked about Brian Stevenson, you know, coming to speak to my class, I had a, the opportunity to, to, to intern with him while I was in law school. And one of the things that he did was he, he you know, poured a lot of resources into the, the um, representation of the client and he discouraged, and I won't, I won't say he discouraged people from making a career of it, but his office wasn't set up for people to be there, for, for lawyers to be there for decades, right? Because, because he realized, right, that it's the kind of job where sometimes you do it for a while and you need to take a, you know what I mean? Or you mm -hmm. do it for a while and you need to do something else. You know what I mean? You do it for a while because it is, you know, like I said, if you do it well, it's really, really, you know. Yeah, it's, it's got to be extremely taxing on you. Mm -hmm. Um, I, that's one thing I've realized over time is like things that you're passionate about, you focus, you focus your time even outside of work on those things. And eventually, even though you love doing it, it could be overwhelming and, and emotionally taxing and exhausting. Um, now, uh, I had a question and it just slipped my mind. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, is there any cases uh, that we should be paying attention to that you want like the listeners to kind of um, look up and maybe research? So, you know, I can't really, I can't really talk about cases that are in process, but you know, I wish I could, uh, but, but we, we, we actually discourage our, our clients from 
um, getting involved with media, all that kind of stuff. Because again, some of the things that go into exoneration, there's the legal aspect of it, but there's also the political aspect of it, and this and that. So we want to, you know, kind of make sure that all stays tight. But I would encourage listeners. There is University of Michigan um, has a, there's a, a, a registry, a national registry of exoneration, um, and in that registry, you will see just every, you know. Um, uh, kind of recent exoneration across the country, and it'll tell you a little bit about the person, about, you know, how and why um, they were convicted in the first place, what led to their release, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really eye-opening. Um, you know, I, I would encourage people to, you know, because, again, I think people are sometimes, they, their eyes are open when, when they realize how often or how easily this stuff happens. Um, so, you know, just to encourage uh, listeners to kind of read about it, like I said, Just Mercy is a, is a wonderful, it was a feature film, kind of a Hollywood uh, uh, film, and it's just a, a wonderful kind of example. And, and that, that case is a death penalty, it's about a death penalty case, but it's also about an innocence case, the, the, the man who was convicted was innocent. And it gives, you know, this kind of wonderful story of how he ends up in that situation and all the work that it took. Um, and, and certainly, you know, I, I know our office, uh, takes donations of, of uh, um, resource and time from the public, you know, look for ways to support your local innocence organizations um, or for, you know, people in your community that might that might be returning citizens, whether they're innocent or not. Um, so just, you know, to kind of take steps to raise your own awareness about, you know, this issue and, and how we might impact it. Yeah, I think it's super important to raise awareness. And I think that um, over, like, recently, within the last couple of years, uh, there's been like, obviously, like Josh Dubin was on Rogan's podcast, and there's been some other people on going on other podcasts to help bring awareness to a lot of the wrongfully convicted um, cases. And so would you say that within the last few years, there's, there's been more attention surrounding those things? Yes, and there's, you know, there's always, I, I, you know, you always notice a spike when you when, when there is a kind of a sensational case about someone, you know, um, you know, there was Brian Banks, the football player who was, you know, wrongfully convicted. So you know, anytime you have a high profile case, that you, you see a spike in awareness. But what's been nice recently is, again, because of the movement, you know, within prosecutor's offices and otherwise, there's been more exonerations. Um, and so I think that people are becoming, uh, it, it's, it's becoming more part of the day-to-day -day consciousness of society and not just this occasional thing where it's like, oh, wow, that, you know, I can't believe that happened. It's more like, wow, another one? Like, you know what I mean? Like, I wonder who else is, you know, who else needs help? So, you know, again, that, that, that's been nice. And some of our exonerees, so, you know, we, we have an exoneree named Kenneth Nixon, and he is just, I'm telling you, I keep telling you he's going to be mayor of something one day. Like, they, they've been doing just a phenomenal job of supporting each other um, and, and trying to raise, raise awareness both about um, how this has impacted them, but also about their brothers and sisters who are still, you know, I mean, kind of awaiting help. So they're, and you know, with social media and you know all of those kind of things, there's just there's just more, you know, uh, people like you who are, are uh, who host uh, discussions like this. There's just more avenues, right, to to, to have these discussions. And I, I always love, you know, kind of talking to people who are exploring this for the first time, and, and they're like, wow, I just did not realize how deep this problem is, and so. Um, so I never pass up an opportunity to talk about it. <laughs> well, thank, thank you. The mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you again for uh, sitting down and talking with me. I, I enjoy talking to, uh, I enjoy talking to people like you who are on the other side of it, but I've also sat down and talked to some like people that have been wrongfully convicted. Um, mm -hmm. I interviewed this lady, her name was Elizabeth. 
I can't remember her last name, but she was one of the San Antonio Four. Mm. Um, and there was, I think, a, like a documentary on that as well. I think on, it was on like Hulu or Amazon. Um, okay. But she was, uh, four women were accused of like sexually like sodomizing a, a girl or, and then I think, I think it was like a, I can't, I can't remember. It was so long ago when I interviewed her. Okay. Um, but yeah, she, they were wrongfully convicted and spent like 20 years in prison for it. And then it finally came out that, um, that somebody had lied and, and it was just horrific. It's horrific to hear those things, but it's, it's amazing when you can sit down and see that person and see that they're not in prison, that they're living a decent life. And so I like, I like to bring light to that. And absolutely, absolutely. People get, people get in a second chance. Um, exactly. Yeah. So. Well, so thank, thank you so much. I so appreciate the discussion. I really do. It's just, um, First of all, it takes me, you know, giving me a break from my bedroom box full of paper. So. <laughs> opportunity to talk at a higher level about it, so I appreciate that. Absolutely. And uh, thank you. Um, is there any links that you would want the audience to go to go visit? Maybe uh, anything with uh, your guys' um, organization specifically? So I can send you, yes. Yeah, so there is, I can send to you. Um, but once we get up, I'll send you a couple of links, but there's a, a link to our Innocence Project, just our website in general, like that has some information. There's a national um, registry that I that, that I reference as well, but when we get off the line, I'll send you a couple of links that might be good, kind of overview um, sources of information. And there's an Innocence Network, there's actually a national network of Innocence organizations that we're a part of um, that does a lot with respect to, to support of Innocence organizations and of exonerees, and we have a big conference every year, you know, and Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you, Tracy. Thanks for doing this. Yeah. It's been an honor. Yeah, same here. Very nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. All right. All right. Bye. Bye.